morning, Sunridge. If you're a guest with us today, welcome. If Sunridge is your home church, welcome back. Uh, remain standing. I want us to read our scripture that we'll be looking at today. We're going to put it up on the screen. If you'll just join me and read along, even if you're in the back, read with me, okay? Let's say these words. They're the words of the Apostle Paul. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Nice job. Let's pray. God, in the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to focus on words that were written 2,000 years ago to a body of believers that none of us know. Uh, Through history and context and scholars, we, we know a bit about their situation. And even though these words are not written expressly to us, they're written for us. And so as we sit and, um, and study together and contemplate um, these truths and um, advice and guidance to early Christians, I pray that you would open our hearts, that our spirits would be sensitive to your Holy Spirit, that you would encourage us and inspire us, And in places where we need challenging and nudging, I pray that you would do that. That we would bring all of us, whatever our week has been like, whatever is in front of us, that we'd bring all of it and lay it at your feet as we we look at these inspired words that meant so much to them and can mean so much to us today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. If you're new here, my name's Britt, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we have been looking at the Apostle Paul's letter that he wrote to these believers in Colossae, um, a church that Paul had actually never visited, and we like, started in the beginning of the letter, and we're going all the way through, chugging our way through to the end of the letter. And you know, when he wrote this, um, he had never been to this church, as far as we can tell. And if you don't know much about the Apostle Paul, he was uh, converted miraculously. He met the resurrected Christ, even though he was a persecutor of the church. And that, he never got over the sense that Christ must be central in, in his life. And so he wrote these letters back to the churches that he founded, or in this case, one that um, a disciple of his had founded, Epaphras, And these letters are written to guide them, to instruct them, to deal with issues uh, that they were facing. And what arises as a central theme to this letter, especially in the first two chapters, is that Jesus Christ must be the center of our lives. There's a lot of ways that people refer to what that means. It's like, you know, what would Jesus do? Some people use the phrase gospel-centered. I really, and it's, it's part of my language maybe, uh, how I was raised, but I love the phrase Christ-centered. That our lives, are surround, we surround our lives, not just in what Jesus did on the cross, but who Jesus was. His character, 
his passions, the things that he taught. And we, we bring ourselves to the, to, to the foot, not, not just of the cross, but of his life. And we ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a Christ follower in that sense? Because when Paul was talking about being Christ being the center of your lives, he wasn't just saying that one day you prayed a prayer and so now you're a Christian. It's much bigger than that. In the second chapter, he says that just as you received Christ, Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. That is, conversion or becoming Christian isn't just a, a moment in time. It's something that God is continually doing in our lives and in the world. And we're to be rooted and built up in him and strengthened in the faith. So what does that mean and how, how do we do that? That's kind of the essence of what we're going to look at today in verses 15 through 17. A Christ-centered life. You know, last week we, we began to look at that idea like at a personal level where Paul said, you know, a lot of the old, the old ways, they have to go. And we have to embrace a new way of living. We talked about those qualities and characteristics that span from like just moral living to matters of the heart and how we deal and interact with one another. A Christ-centered life isn't something that's achieved in a day or in a simple prayer. It's a lifelong pursuit, and as we mentioned last week, to be Christ-centered in our lives is to sign up for a continual and comprehensive change. Jesus Christ is changing us from the inside out, and so we're never done. We're never done with what God is doing in our hearts and changing us. And so living a Christ-centered life is really the result of having Jesus Christ at the center of our lives. That's what we're going to talk about today. And uh, I've given you some notes that you can follow along with. A Christ-centered life is to, number one, allow the peace of Christ to guide our decisions. To allow the peace of Christ to, to guide our decisions. If you see in verse 15... Paul begins this section by saying, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. When he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, what, what does he mean by that? Well, in the original language, what Paul is doing here is he's using a sports analogy. He's referring to the early Olympic games, the Greek games. You know, uh, it was a couple years ago, um, someone put in an in-touch card. It was someone named Anonymous. I don't know who Anonymous is, but sometimes they write some weird stuff. But like, um, Anonymous wrote, you know, Britt, I wish you would not use as many sports illustrations. And I just want to point out that I'm just following the Apostle Paul's way here. <laughs> you see, in the Greek games from which we, you know, the Olympics were uh, born out of these early sports challenges. There were judges at those events. Today, we would call them umpires or referees, and they judged infractions. They maintained fairness, and they rejected contestants that cheated or were unqualified to compete. And what Paul is saying here, he's, he's capturing a, a relevant experience for the people of that day. He's saying, let the peace of Christ be your umpire. 
Let the peace of Christ referee. Let the peace of Christ call the shots. Let the peace of Christ make your decisions for you. So the picture here is like we're coming to a decision point about our life, about a decision that we have, a choice that we're going to make, a way that we're going to respond in a certain situation. And picture Jesus Christ and his peace being there with his umpire outfit on and either throwing a flag or saying play on or like blowing the whistle and telling you to continue. That's the picture that Paul is giving. Now, typically we think of God's peace as being more of a result, right? I made a decision and God gives me peace. But it's not something that follows a decision here, not as as Paul is using it. He's reversing it to say, let his peace call the shots. Think about the way we go about making good decisions. We, I mean, generally it starts with, I want to do something, I want something. But then we'll add to it, well, what's right? We'll consider what's right. What's the moral thing in this case? What's wise? What's economical? What will make me feel good? And what Paul is saying here is consider all those things. They're all part of decision-making and life choices. But he's saying, add this and give this the most weight. He's saying we should be asking ourselves, How can I make this decision in a way that aligns me with the teachings and the life of Jesus? Is this how Jesus would call it? It's about placing the life of Jesus Christ, the way he lived his life and his passions and his teaching at the core of our lives. You know, if you're considering being a Christian, You should know that being a Christian isn't just like saying a prayer or signing up for a creed or, you know, um, making some categorizational decisions about what you think about this or that. It is really to allow Jesus Christ to take over in our lives. You know, that's true and, and a good reminder whether you're considering Christ or whether you've been a Christian for a really long time, that a Christ centered life. At the center of it is allowing the peace of Christ to make our decisions. It's important to note that the peace of Christ is not the same as peace of heart. Because often choosing the peace of Christ will put us in turmoil with ourselves, with our culture. And the truth is sometimes our hearts can fool us, right? We'll say, we'll make a decision. Well, I have peace about it. There's a false peace. The peace of Christ is different than we typically think of peace. Jesus in John 14, 27, he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I'm going to give you my peace. I don't give to you as the world gives. The peace of Christ is different. How often do we, have we made a decision without considering Christ's peace in the beginning, but then we quickly start praying for God to give us peace because we made that decision. Do you see? you guys ever do that? Yeah, me neither, because I'm a pastor. <laughs> I mean, haven't you ever said to yourself, well, I'm, I'm just going to do this. 
and then later it's not working out, and then you start praying for God's peace. You know, often our lack of peace is caused by our decisions to not allow the peace of Christ make our decisions. See, the peace that passes all understanding that Paul talked about in Philippians 4 doesn't come as the result of disobedience. His peace is based on obedience. He is the referee. And so when we come to a choice and it's like, you know, I really want this, but I, I know that if I'm letting the peace of Christ rule in this situation, it's like, it's going to be hard. And we let Jesus make that decision for us. And, you know, you're totally free to make that face that everybody makes when an umpire calls them out, right? You know, it's like, have you been watching the, the um, NBA or the college basketball um, games? And, like, someone makes a call and, like, and there's all kind of like antics and faces. Like, don't you want to do that sometimes when Jesus messes with you? You just want to make a face and go, come on, man, you, that can't be the call. You know, even, even when it's uncomfortable, um, you can call for a, a review of that decision through prayer. But we have to take that decision to Jesus, right? Because we're never going to get peace by choosing without his peace. By the way, Paul indicates here that the peace of Christ isn't just an individual thing. Notice again in verse 15, he says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. This peace that happens is not just my little world and whatever however it affects everybody else is not my concern it's a big concern this peace is is something that is achieved achieved in a community of faith it's something that we do together as brothers and sisters in the in in the family of god in second corinthians 3 or 13 11, paul says that we're to live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. And we talk about this often here, but the church, we're a family. And families have squabbles. But because we're a family, there's a way that we approach it. And we're trying to achieve peace in a community of faith. When the peace of Christ is calling the shots in a church, in a family, in a group, peace is achieved together. It's worked out. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers, not just going along to getting along, and, and, and not just to like, just react to everybody. This is a peace that is made because we are members of one body. So in the end, allowing the peace of Christ to call the shots in our life is really to make a decision in a way that brings the peace of God in my life and the same in the community of faith in which I am a part of, of which I am a part of. And in order to do that, you're going to desperately need number two. A Christ-centered life is to be intentional about knowing who God is 
through the Bible and his people. Through the Bible and his people. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. When Paul refers to the word of Christ, he's talking about whatever the Christians at this time knew of the teachings of Jesus and what, what was the core of what he taught. Remember, they didn't have a, a, a sewn-together Bible like we have. We don't even know. Like They may have had like parts of the Gospels. They may have parts of letters. At this time, they have Paul's letter, but we really don't know how much of that had accumulated for them. And so a lot of what they're they're referring to, when we think of the word of Christ, of course, we think of Jesus' the red-letter words in our New Testament, but that's not what they had. They had oral tradition. They had pieces of Scripture, which they went over and over and over again. And, and Paul is saying here that, that those teachings must dwell in us richly, abundantly. It's kind of like, I think of it like food. Maybe I have issues, but like... You know that, you know, when you sit down and you eat a meal and you're just like really, really satisfied and stuffed. You know, when you go to Cheesecake Factory and you eat that giant meal and then you order cheesecake after it and you choose not to share your cheesecake. And you're so full that you can't even lay down because the food is like right up against your flapper valve here. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you guys don't do that. We should be so full of the teachings of Jesus and of the word of God that it's like we're just stuffed. Not trying to like exist off like little tidbits, but like we should allow it to fill us. You know, oftentimes in the Bible, God's word is referred to as food. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, right? And Jeremiah said in, 15, in Jeremiah 15, 16, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. So indulge me here a second just to, just to think about like you, we as Christians, let's just talk about the word of God like it's food. And I want to talk about like three environments that all of us should be ingesting God's word in. We should do it corporately in worship. We should do it in a smaller group. And we should do it individually. And I, and I just want to carry the food analogy forward because I think it gives you a better picture of what each environment can do for you, what its strengths and weaknesses are. For instance, in this worship room, to me, this is like a potluck that... There's no way that every person can get an individual meal when there are anywhere from 250 to 450 people in this room. That would be like going to a potluck and saying, well, I have all of my special needs. Where's the food for me? No one would do that. A potluck is about the gathering. It's about something that applies to everybody as much as possible. So you eat the seven-layer dip even though it's not made like your mom makes it. And, you know, you eat the jello. Well, maybe you don't eat the jello, but... You know, it's, it's not about the individual when the church gathers together. It's a much bigger 
picture. But then there's a smaller group. It might be a study, it might be rooted, it might be just a group that you've thrown together of friends. And that's more like your family meal. It's much more tailored to who you are and what your needs are. In fact, a lot of our groups, they get together and say, let's do this together. There's an agreement, which we don't do in this big room, right? Because we'd never agree on what we should teach or how we should teach it. But in a small group, you can get closer to that. But there's still differences. You think about, you know, your family over the years with your kids being at home, you know, some kids are picky about this or that. I mean, you can, you can kind of get that meal together and make everybody happy, but you can't, can't always do that. I've told a story before where, like, it was obvious to me. At one time, my kids, we had only fed them uh, Costco boneless breasts because one day I barbecued these chicken breasts that had bones in them, and one of my daughters said, this chicken has bones. And I'm like, yeah, that's how they come. They come with bones, and they didn't realize that. One of them didn't. It's like we're always trying to accommodate our family, but it's a much, much more likely they're going to be right where you are, but it's not going to be perfect. And then there's your individual study time, which is more just like, hey, I'm eating by myself today. If I'm in this office and we're not going to lunch as a group or we're not sitting together, I didn't bring in leftovers, you know what? I decide what I'm going to eat decide what I'm hungry for, what's best for me. And it might be farmer boys, if I'm wanting to, you know, bump up my cholesterol a little bit, or I might be healthy and go to Waba. I don't know. But it's like, I'm not worried about what everybody else wants to eat. I just, like, this is Brit time. And that's your individual Bible study. And as Christians, we need all three of those environments to allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. We need corporate worship together, which we come together around God's word and worshiping Jesus Christ. You need your small group environment, and you need personal Bible study. Is Christian, listen to me, are you doing that? Are you engaging in the word of God and allowing it to dwell in you richly in those ways? If you do, you will put yourself on a path to, to know God. It's important that we, we do it corporately and we do it in small groups because we understand God together as well. Notice what he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. You know, one of the practices of the early church was they constantly got together, and as they got a letter or, a, uh, you know, someone came through and taught, they would examine these things. They would be inspired by that. Uh, Acts 17.11 talks about the Bereans, how noble they were because they searched the Scriptures daily after someone had taught them. You see this pattern in Acts chapter 2 where the church would gather together in different groups and they would give themselves to the apostles' teaching and to doctrine. They, they were engaging in the Word of God together. That's really important because if it's just me, I'm much more likely to allow my own heart and my own biases to veer off or to filter out God's word. And yet it's the engagement among believers that, that brings us into a fuller picture of who Jesus Christ is. I know some of you are saying, like, I don't have time to do that. I don't have time to get in a group. And, you know, but even if you don't, isn't there a way that you could, 
have coffee with someone weekly or go to lunch with somebody and be intentional about, let's talk about this. Let's do a Bible study. Let's go through this passage of Scripture. Let's, talk, let's turn over the note sheet and let's talk about the questions from Sunday's message. It seems so basic, but you know what I've learned is that both new-ish Christians and seasoned Christians need to be often reminded about how important it is to be in the Word of God regularly in different ways. We need to be, we're, we're not just like breaking down the Word of God. It's like we are the living Word to one another. We're, we're, we're bringing our perspectives and our insights and what God has taught us to one another when we engage like that. And we encourage each other by doing that. We challenge each other. We test each other. But it requires that we listen to each other. And we're humble as we engage. The only way that can happen is if is believers together have the posture of learners with one another. Because if we don't have that, the scripture will divide us and we'll fall into our little categories. And I think the, the beautiful part of the body of Christ is that we interact with one another around God's word. And we grow through that. In fact, learning in isolation is not biblical. There is no context for that. Now, last on the word of God, I want you to see how Paul compares being filled with scripture and being spirit-filled. Um, so here's our verse that we've been looking at. Let the word of Christ join you richly and see, see what it, he says is the result. Um, with one another, with all wisdom, as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And in Ephesians 5, verse 18, Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that like being filled with the Word and being filled with the Spirit have mirror images in terms of outcome? The Word of God and the Spirit of God enhance who we are. And they lead us to the other. Without the filling of the Holy Spirit, Bible knowledge can lead to pride, not the fruit of the Spirit. And without the Bible, being Spirit-filled can look much like nothing that we see in the Bible. See, we can't be Spirit-filled unless we're also Scripture-filled. And we can't be scripture-filled unless we're also spirit-filled. Allowing Christ's peace to call the shots and filling our minds and our hearts with scripture are critical to the Christ-centered life. And they lead to the last thing that Paul mentions in verse 17. It is to live in a way that brings honor to the reputation of Christ. To live a Christ-centered life is to live in a way that brings honor to Jesus Christ. Verse 17, whatever you do, 
whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know, at this time, I, can, I could not overestimate, I could not over-exaggerate how important a good name was. In Proverbs 22.1, it says that a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Or gold. At this time, your reputation was everything to you. This is an honor-shame culture. And so without the honor that you needed a good reputation, you would become outcast from society. You probably couldn't make a living. It was so important for your name to be good. And in an honor-shame culture, that, that honor and that shame are used to control people. And so when... When Paul says that they're to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, he's calling on the good reputation of Jesus and how we reflect that to those around us. You see how important a name is when like, people change their name in the Bible because of some special event. Paul goes from Saul to Paul. And so this understanding of reputation and name really gives us like the essence of, of what it means when we see passages that talk about uh, doing something in the name of the Lord. Let us praise the name of the Lord, for his name is excellent. In Isaiah 9, 6, it says, Of the birth of this child, that he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are all not... It's not to say in the name of is a magic phrase that you put at the end of a prayer. What Paul is saying is that our reputation, these verses that refer to the reputation of God, they testify to who God is. Jesus said he lived to bring glory to God the Father. That is, he said, my life is entirely tied up in giving God's name a wonderful reputation. And he challenged his followers to do the same. In Matthew 5, 16, he said, In the same way, let your good deeds, good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. According to Paul, this is especially important in how we live around unbelievers. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, he says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your business, and to work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. In other words, work hard so you don't starve, but also because it's going to give a good name to our Lord. So when Paul says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, he's saying that what we say and how we say it and what we do reflect on the reputation of God. He's saying, let your life speak. Because no one will listen to your words if they don't like your life. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. 
And you know, often, we don't have to say anything about our faith if we live it. Our lives speak loudly. We don't have to do something and say, hey, I just want to point out I did that for the reputation of Jesus. People get it. They also get the opposite. See, bearing the name of Christ as a Christian, wearing the image of God, is both a privilege and a responsibility. How many of you guys use Yelp for things? I use Yelp. I love Yelp. Only like six of us? You and I, we are the Yelp rating for God. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or a teacher or a business person or you're in sales or you're a student, a mom, a dad, a cop, a fireman, work in facilities, distribution, Uber driver, whatever you do, we are the Yelp review for who Jesus Christ is. Um, you know, last Sunday I got to sit with somebody in church that uh, we had been ministering to, a, to his family. And um, he was not at home. And he got to come home just that week before. And um, I don't think he's a churchgoer. But his wife and daughter are here, and the daughter's week in and week out. And he came up to me and he said, you know, I just want to thank you for what your church has done for my family. Thank you for looking after my family while I wasn't there. And he said, it just made me think, I, I got to go check this church out. Now, that's, that's not me. That's you. It's this church. And the way our children's ministry and other ministries have ministered to his family. That was a great reputation we had. I've talked before about how we do these bell ringers in our office. We have a bell, and we ring it when something really cool happens. I rang the bell on that one. If you don't know that story, we ring the bell. Everyone in the office has a minute to gather by the bell, and then we have two minutes to tell our story because we have a lot of work to do, but we want, we want stories to be told. And I told that story. It's like, it's such a great story. We were a great Yelp review for God. To be Christ-centered in this way is to live our lives in a way that people are saying something about Jesus because of us and because we're choosing to live in a way that reflects honor on our Lord. I'm going to ask the band to come up right now and I just want to point out that in each of these cases, whether we're talking about the peace of Christ ruling in our lives, whether we're talking about God's word being uh, in us richly or whether we're talking about how we live in a way that honors the reputation of Christ, I want to just point out that each one of those mentions doing it together. We do this as Sunridge Community Church. And then I just want to close with this one thought that I think pops off of the text here. I want to give you a word about thankfulness. In this passage, I want you to see that the peace of Christ is a rule in our hearts. 
since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know, one of the characteristics that comes out of somebody who's living a Christ-like life, a Christ-centered life, if I take the Apostle Paul's teaching, is it, it creates a graciousness in us and a gratitude and a spirit of thankfulness. I want us to be that. I want to be that. Don't you? Don't you want to be somebody who, like the grace of God in our lives is, is so overflowing that we're living our lives centered on Christ and what comes out of that is just a gracious, grateful, thankful spirit. That's what it looks like to be Christ-centered. If that's not what's coming out of your life, I would, I would encourage you, I would admonish you to look at these scriptures again and ask, is, is this my pursuit? Let's pray.